We continue the Shir in Navi, in Hebrew history. As we stated in the last Shir, Hashem spoke to Eliyahu Hanavi, who had come to the special appointed place in Mount Sinai, and there he complained to Hashem, complained against the behavior of the Jews, accusing them of idol worship and demanding retribution and punishment. Hashem said to Eliyahu Navi, I have three missions for you. First, go to Aram, that is Syria, and there you will anoint Hazael as the new king. Second, for the ten tribes of Israel, you will anoint Yehu as the future king. At this time, Achav was still king, and Yehu would become king in the distant future. It wasn't after Achav. Achav's son would reign after Achav. But in the distant future, Yehu would become king of the ten tribes. Third, Hashem said to Elianavi, Go and appoint Elisha Hanavi, Elisha the prophet, your student, in your place to replace you as the leading prophet for the Jews. This was the most important anointment of all. We'll come back to this soon. Meanwhile, the Torah tells us that the Syrian king at that time, whose name was Ben-Hadad, we all know the Hadads as famous SYs, Syrians, we know where they come from. This Ben-Hadad was a Syrian, a king, and an evil one, which are practically all synonymous. <laughs> He sent a message to King Achav. King Achav himself was a wicked king of the Jews, king of the ten tribes. The message he stated, this is a statement of fact. Your gold, your wealth, and your wives belong to me. I'm going to invade your country and take over all of your wealth and take your wives as slaves. Achav replied, sent a message to Ben-Hadad, Syria, I agree. In other words, I am ready to surrender. You can have our wealth and whatever else goes with it. This was sort of a test statement to see if Ben-Hadad really meant it. Following this, Ben-Hadad said, I don't like your attitude, your sniveling attitude. And therefore, I'm telling you now that in addition to the fact that your gold and your wives belong to me, also your treasure, your highest, most treasured item you possess belongs to me too. This, the Gemara says, referred to the Sefer Torah. Now we note that Achav, a wicked king who worshipped idols, spread idol worship, and yet there was some spark of goodness within him. The respect for a safer Torah still existed within him. He was ready and willing to surrender all of the treasures that he possessed, willing to give up not only the treasures of all the ten tribes of Israel, willing to surrender and to defile the honor of the women, the Jewish women, their wives possibly, but no. When Ben-Hadad sent this message to Achav, I'm going to take and to desecrate your highest treasure, the Sefer Torah, at this point, Achav rebelled. 
he summoned his elders, he spoke to them, he had a special discussion on this single item, and he replied to Ben-Hadad was a rejection of Ben-Hadad's demand. The Gemara says that for this reason, because Achav defended the cover, the honor of the Sefer Torah, therefore, though he was that wicked, so bad that he worshipped idols and classified as one of the worst the kings that ever existed, and where the Gemara states emphatically that he never got to get Aden, he goes to Gehenna forever, still, at least one reward he got. He was given a prolonged reign. He ruled for a period of 22 years as a king, king of the Jews, 22 years corresponding to what is known as the Chaf Beis Aswan, the 22 letters of the Torah. The entire Torah, written or all, is made up of, comprised of these 22 letters. 22 letters of the Yalaf Beis can form any word that will be found in the Torah. Because he defended the honor of the Sefer Torah, therefore Achav was Zochet to 22 years as king in royalty. However, Ben-Hadad was furious. So this time he sent a letter to Achav stating, tomorrow we shall not delay. Tomorrow we're going to take the capital of the Israeli kingdom, Shomron, that will fall into our hands and will take everything. Achav again replied the very famous words which Shabbat uses in reference to one of the most important achievements that a Jew could ever hope to acquire, to attain. These, these words were coined by Achav. Achav who said, Al Yishalel Choger Kimifateach. You boast, you'll be in Shomro tomorrow, you're going to conquer our kingdom, you're going to take everything. Don't boast yet. Because a soldier who goes out to battle, girds himself, puts on his belt, his sword, ready for battle. A soldier who goes through battle is victorious, comes home in victory, and is free to remove this belt, is called a mefateach. When you're first going out into battle, you're first putting on your belt with the sword, let not he who girds himself for battle boast as one who has come home victoriously. Abedazar, by the way, applies this to the one of the greatest possible zechusim that a Yisraeli, a Jew, could attain, achieve. And that is the one the Gemara speaks about, the zechus of a Jew walking four steps in Eretz Yisrael. There is no comparison between a Jew who has never been to Israel and one who has had the zechus of walking those four steps. Let not he who has never been there boast of his accomplishments as one who has already come back. But not even he who intends to go there boast, because until you've made it, you cannot be sure. Many times a person hopes to go, and then there are neos, that means barriers, obstacles, things that stop a person's trip. He does not realize the fulfillment, and it is only after it is done that then a person can feel a sense of pride and achievement. The same, of course, naturally holds true. The person who hopes, aspires to attain the greatest height, that of reaching the Tzion of Rabbeinazal. You cannot compare one who has achieved that. That person is called him a Fateach. He has returned victoriously. So this, we said the statement was made by 
Achav to Ben-Hadad, who had boasted he's going to take over the entire kingdom of the Jews. At that moment, the Navi, there was a good Navi, Michoihu, who came to Achav and told Achav in the name of Hashem, not tomorrow, but today. Today, you are going to defeat the entire army of Syria, of Aram, the entire army of Ben-Hadad. And of course, this was a big statement because Ben-Hadad's army was tremendous in ratio to the Jews. They were much better equipped. They may not have had arms shipped to them from Russia, but the Syrians then were certainly much better equipped militarily than the Jews. Achav's army was an extremely weak one. So Achav asked Michoihu, the Navi, tell me through whom shall this victory come? Who will be our fighters? Because we do lack fighters. We lack soldiers for the army. Michoihu, the Navi answered, the Navi of Hashem answered, through the children, the sons of your officers. Not the officers, the officers' sons, the princes. There are a total of 232 of these officers' sons. They will be the leaders. There are also 7,000 Jews among you who have never bowed to the idol Baal. These 232 officers and these 7,000 soldiers together will defeat the entire army of Aram. Abedazel warns, and something we should take to heart. Abedazel tells us that Never take lightly numbers. The Torah states numbers. Don't take this lightly. It happens that the numbers amount to so-and-so, 370, 390, or 18,000, 600,000. Every one of these numbers is in the Torah for a reason. denotes something very special. How does it happen that there are exactly 232 B'nai HaSorim, children of the leaders? One word, of course, 232 is the total sum of the four combinations of Hashem's name. We won't go into that at all now. Just suffice it to say these are the total sum of Hashem's name, corresponding to the four levels of creation. B'nai HaSorim, these are the, the results of these sorim, the leading names. And also, Reish Lamed Beis tells us exactly what is required for victory because the Gemara says, the Zaydik Kodesh uses this term too, Rachmona Liba boy, Hashem wants the heart of a Jew. This Reish Lama Beis 232 is the first letters of these three words. Hashem wants the Jew's heart, and not the Jew's muscle, not the Jew's physical power. That leave to Hashem. That Meshach Rabbeinu said to the Jews, Hashem Yilachem Lachem, Yatem Tachrishun. You remain silent. Do nothing. Passively, you'll receive the assistance of Hashem in battle, and you'll be victorious. Therefore, these 232, which means the goodness, the Kedusha, exists among the Jews is enough to bring them victory. And these 7,000 who are loyal, of course, this refers to the seven Svidas, Chesed Rumalchus, and the result of this battle was that the Syrians suffered a very serious defeat. Very large number of soldiers were wiped out. The Navi Michoy told Achav, be strong, strengthen yourself in this battle. Do as much harm as you could because know that though Ben-Hadad has suffered defeat in this battle, he's going to come back. 
The Syrians will not accept defeat lying down. He's going to come back strong to, to re-attack at the end of this year. Well, the advisors of Ben Haddad, let's go over to the Syrian front and see what goes on behind their lines. These advisors told Ben Haddad, we have an idea of how to win the battle against the Israelis. First place, we suffered because we did not have good officers. You must have good officers that can lead the troops in battle. Notice the simile, the comparison, parallel to wars today. Note the words of these Syrian leaders. You must have good officers. You had a very large army before that was defeated. The reason they were defeated was because you had the princes. This was a combination of many kings and princes who combined with your army to do battle against Israel. Now, who led these soldiers in battle? These princes and kings. It is only natural that a prince or a king in battle seeks to protect himself. He will not go into the thickness of battle. Because what is there to gain in going into the thickness of battle? You become a hero. Possibly a dead hero. Possibly a live one is what we're looking to achieve. Now, what could a king or a prince gain in taking this risk? If he becomes a hero, he gains more what? He can't become higher than a king. Therefore, the advice here is that instead of appointing these kings to lead the, off the soldiers in battle, you have to appoint the ones on a lower level, lower than kings, one who look for promotions. They will give their all, they will be willing to sacrifice themselves in battle and take the greatest risks in order to achieve this heroism. That's the first bit of advice. Secondly, they said, this part, of course, was what defeated their own purpose. They doomed themselves. They said, the Hashem of the Jews battled you before on the mountains. He is the king of the mountains. Why don't you do battle in the valley, the lowlands, there you'll probably ought to defeat him. This was their plan of battle. At this point, the prophet, the Navi Michoyu, came to Achav and said to him, because they boasted that they can defeat Hashem in the valley, I'm telling you now that they're going to have a battle in the valley, and that's where they're going to fall. They're going to suffer a very low, degrading type of defeat. The battle begun. It was begun on the first day of the week, and on the seventh day of battle, the climax came when 100,000 of the Syrian army were wiped out. 100,000 soldiers killed. The others fled, retreated into their city, and in the ensuing battle where the, the walls caved in upon them, an additional 27,000 of the enemy died, perished. At that point, the servants of Ben-Hadad decided on a last-ditch stand a personal plea to Achav on behalf of their king. They came to Achav. They pleaded with Achav for the sake of Ben-Hadad. Achav was flattered. They said, is he really alive yet? Well, bring him here. Let him rise. Let him come up to my coach, my royal coach. Ben-Hadad was told that Achav is in a good mood. 
And he came forward, went up on the coach, sat next to Achav. And Achav called him, my brother, you may sit with me. We didn't want war in the first place. And Ben-Hadad, seeing his chance, said, well, of course we want peace. And not only that, but my father took Hadad, senior, took certain cities from you. I want to return them to you peacefully. You can have them all back. And Achav said to Ben-Hadad, go in peace, my brother. Go and relax. Let us have peace and goodwill amongst us. This way we will not look forward to any war further. Ben-Hadad could be trusted no further than what's the least could be trusted, left with plans for the future. At that point, of course, everything that transpired in the coach privately was well known to Mikhoihu, the prophet. A prophet sees all and hears all from a distance because it is all transmitted to him through heaven. So Mikhoihu approached one man, one Jew, and said to him, Strike me, hit me. The Jew looked at him and said, You, Mikhoihu, the prophet, I should raise a hand to strike you? Never. Mikhoihu said, Strike me or you will die. A lion is going to consume you. This Jew said, I will not put a hand on a prophet. Mikhoihu waited. The Jew walked away. A lion came springing out from nowhere and devoured this Jew. Then he walked over to a second Jew and said to him, Strike me, hit me real hard, give me a beating. And this Jew said, Gladly. <laughs> he began to strike Mikhoihu. He gave him a beating that was second to none, probably in history. Mikhoihu limped over to the road and waited for Achav's coach to come by. You see, it's a pretty difficult chore, task to be a prophet. You've got to go through one of these tribulations. He waited for Achav's coach to come by. When Achav came by, he stopped him. Achav looked down and said, Who are you? He didn't recognize him. Of course, Mikhoihu, in addition to his wounds, also disguised himself not to be recognized. And he said, Your Majesty, I want to complain. Register a complaint against another Jew. The king said, what is it? He said, well, one Jew, an official in your army, came to me, an officer, and said to me, here is a prisoner. I want you to watch him. Guard him carefully. If you do not, if he escapes, it's your life for his. If he doesn't, if you watch him well, I'm going to reward you tremendously. You have loads of gold and silver wealth. Well, I was negligent. I let this man escape. Look at me. Look what he did to me. I want to complain against him. King said, you have only yourself to blame. It's your own fault, because your life for his. Suddenly, Mikhoihu removed his disguise and stood there as the prophet and said, exactly. Now I speak to you in the name of Hashem. Your life for his. You were told, gird yourself for battle, be relentless. Above all, do not show mercy to the enemy. Because that is the worst type of sadism, the most evil heart, is he who pities an evil person. Those who pitied Haggai, Amalek, caused 
so much ensuing trouble and harm for the Jews in later generations. It was your opportunity now, when Hashem granted you victory, to wipe out your enemy. If you had killed Ben-Hadad, you would have been victorious and never suffered from Syria again. Because you were weak in this respect, you refused to accept the blessing of Hashem. Therefore, your life for his life now, and your people for his people. He is going to destroy you and your people. Achav turned away, very downhearted, feeling very bitterly about this. He came home in a very bad mood. He felt the truth of Mechoyahu's words. Now this, of course, was a wrong deed on his part. Very wrong, because we had cases before. case of Shoal HaMelech, who allowed Agag, the king of Amalek, to remain alive. We see how poisonous that turned out to be. And how again and again the Torah warns us that if there is evil, destroy it before it destroys you. The case of criminals, forget about treating them with silk gloves. Criminals, hardened criminals, should be wiped out so that the good people, civilization, could continue safely. Never coddle a criminal and never release one when he should be punished. And punished to the utmost. Above all, the Torah condones, advocates, and preaches capital punishment. Death to a murderer. Death to a killer. It is only then that people, good people can live in safety, in harmony, and in peace. Now we come to the part of Eliyahu Hanavi, who came to Elisha Hanavi, and upon the command of Hashem, removed his cape, a special cape that Eliyahu wore, and threw it over the shoulders of Elisha Hanavi. This gave Elisha a lightness. He began to run after Eliyahu to follow him. And Eliyahu said to him, what do you want of me? He said, I want to go with you from now on to remain, not to be separated for a moment. And of course, this meant that he was going to receive the leadership, which means to become the greatest tzaddik alive, to take over the powers of Eliyahu. This is a separate story in itself, how he took over these powers. But first, let's note a very interesting point. The fact that a king who passes away automatically transfers his kingdom, his royalty, his reign to his son. An official, the owner of a corporation, can transmit the ownership to whomever he pleases. case of a tzaddik, case of a chief rabbi, as Leonavi was, a prophet, then it would seem to us that he would appoint whomever he wished as his successor. Note that in this case, Hashem told Eliyahu whom to appoint among all his students. Would he have chosen Elisha himself? Or did he have to be told by Hashem? The Imar tells us of all these students of Eliyahu there were many hundreds of them, hundreds of prophets, real prophets at that time. Why was Elisha Hanavi chosen, selected over all of them? What made him stand out greater in holiness, in power, this means real power because the power of performing miracles, as we'll see, was increased in the hands of Elisha Hanavi. Why was he selected over all the others? Was it that he had more knowledge than the others? The study of Torah was embedded in him more than others? 
or that he have a certain type of quality of goodness of heart that rated him being chosen and selected? The Gemara answers the one point that can place one student over all the others is the point of shimush. Kodel shimusha shoteda yesamirimuda. Learning, studying Torah is one of the greatest mitzvahs possible. Studying Torah under a chief rabbi under a tzaddik, under a Talmud Chacham, is most commendable and most admirable. But when you have many students, among them, it is not the one who studies Torah, it is the one who is Meshamesh, who serves the Talmud Chacham more than the others. In the case of Eliyahu Navi, he had many other prophets beneath him. But there was only one, Elisha Hanavi, the Gemara says, who actually served him. Why was he greater than the others? Because he poured water on the hands of Eliyahu Navi, a simple type of service, menial labor. He poured water for him. Why was Yehoshua greater than all Moshe and his students? Because he helped them with his chair. He set the chair before him, set up the chairs in the Besamedrash. Very simple type of service, but that simplicity is what stands out most. Mephoshim explained that this Shemush, of course, means the fact that he is close constantly means that not only will he learn the words of Torah, but he'll see them put into practice. You may learn about Hebrew law, but if you don't see them practiced, you will not really understand them. So by seeing it in practice, you'll understand much better. You'll be fit to take over afterwards. The Horace Rabbi Akiva once spoke about his early beginning as a Talmud of the greatest rabbis in the world at that time, Rabbi Eliezer HaGodol and Rabbi Yeshua. He said that when I first began to study beneath them, I was very anxious, I was very thirsty for words of Teda. And I was out in the forest one day, I learned about the mitzvah of burial. Voyas Amesh, to bury a dead person, is above most other mitzvahs. It's called a gemilas chesed, kindness. I found a dead body, I found a corpse, and I said, here's my opportunity. I will give this corpse of a Jew, dead body of a Jew, a decent burial, and thereby perform so great a mitzvah. I picked up this corpse. I carried it myself for many miles. I came into the city, and there I got the best type of grave possible. I completed this mitzvah, and I walked very happily and proudly into the Beis HaMedrash, I reported this to my rabbis, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua. And both of them said to me, every step you took, every step you took that you walked from that place in the forest, in the woods, to the city, each step there was a separate crime for which you're supposed to get death. Death for every step you took. Why? Because the mitzvah in the Torah says that a mace mitzvah, if you find a body outside of a city, then it's Outside of a city means that there's no one, no owner to that property. Who owns the property there? The corpse owns the property upon which he is lying. He must be buried on his own property. You find him in the city confines, within the boundaries of the city, of course, then he could be moved. Outside of the city, you cannot move the body of a Jew who is found there. And the Akiva said, I learned at that moment that never again Will I ever undertake to perform an act to decide a mitzvah unless I see it from my rabbis?
primarily Indian of Shimush. How important is Shimush to serve Blessed Yeshua, and by serving them, I will learn completely the laws, the dinim in practice. The Lord says too, note that Rabbi Eliezer had a Talmud. One day he heard an announcement in heaven, this Talmud must receive a death penalty. Because he has committed certain crimes, he must die by fire. And then he overheard the discussion in heaven where the heavenly decision was, he shall not die. But though he deserves death, and by fire, he shall not die because he was left to serve so great a tzaddik as Rebeliezer. No matter what crime he committed, he cannot receive a death penalty because serving Rebeliezer Agadol is enough to keep him alive. He has earned himself a pardon, an exemption from this death penalty. Why did he deserve a death by fire? Aside from all the, the sins he committed, which merited this death penalty, but by fire, because one who leaves, one who deserts the study of Teda, deserves death by fire. Therefore, this, including his other sins, he had the sin of deserting the study of Teda, and that's why the decision of a fiery death. But we see, though, that even if he did not learn, the shimush is greater than learning. He is a student who did not learn Teda. In fact, he left his learning, but he retained the mitzvah of shimush. This was enough to supersede the lack of study of Teda and thereby to be saved, to be rescued from this death penalty. To go one step further, in the union of shimush, there are times when there exists an envy, a jealousy among students. We have a case of Rabbeinazal, who at the age of 13, the age of 13 was married. Before his marriage, he spoke to Rabbi Shimon Zal, Rabbi Shimon ben Bezal, who was a much older person, who was an older man, very great tzaddik, very holy tzaddik, but who was that holy, he could recognize in Rabbeinazal, he could detect in him how great Rabbeinazal was already, and how much greater he will become in the future. Shimon Zell said to Rabbein Zell at that time, I want to stay with you, to stay close with you, and I know you're going to become a very great, famous rabbi, famous tzaddik. I want to be the first to start attending you. From that moment on, Rabbi Shimon Zell remained with Rabbein Zell. In later years, Rabbein Zell became famous. Rabbein Shimon Zell was his Mishamesh Bakadish. He served Rabbein Zell personally, as we would say, Lahavdil, a valet, personal attendant for Abenazel, and Abnasazel, who was Abenazel's greatest Talmud, in a sense envied Abshimazel because he was that close to Abenazel. There was a closeness there. Now we know that Abshimazel was buried in Tzfas, a few steps past below the Arizal's cave, Arizal's sea. During the time of Abenazel, life of Abenazel, Abshimazel went time after another, came to Rabbeinazel with a request, a plea. He pleaded, he begged Rabbeinazel. He said, I was zecher to be your Meshamish. Meshamish, you to serve you during your lifetime. Please grant my request. I want you to promise me that you will let me serve you in Elam Haba, in Ganeden. Let me continue to serve you there. 
Rabbeinu said, I cannot grant that request. So he dropped the subject. Sometime later, Shemizal came to Rabbeinu again. After some time had elapsed, he had served him very loyally. He came again and he asked Rabbeinu Again, Rabbeinu said, I cannot grant that request. Shemizal said to Rabbeinu finally, Don't I deserve it? Not that I served you, but you recall that one day we were riding on a coach, sort of a stage coach with other passengers, coaches filled with people, going to the city of Medvedevka, a small town, that was traveling on a mountainous route. A mountain going downhill had a lot of deep pits, holes, like potholes in it. And if the coach would fall into one of these potholes, begin to slide, the coach would turn over, and there'd be no question, no possibility of anyone coming out alive. No one could emerge live from such an accident. So the Shemazel who saw this quickly leaped from the coach, caught hold of the reins of the horses, and with the Herculean effort, contained the horses, stopped the slide at the risk of his own life. He could have been crushed under the wheels of that coach very easily. He succeeded in stopping the coach, letting it down slowly, thereby saving Abinazal's life and all the lives of those in that coach. Shemazal said, doesn't that rate my earning being your Mishamish serving you in Elam Haba? Abinazal replied, yes, you have done very well there. Very good. It was a very good deed. Could you ask for better? Perhaps not. A very good deed. But even that deed is still not good enough to have you attain this position of serving Abedazal in Elam Haba. Shortly afterwards, Abshimazal, who was undaunted, came before Abedazal to plead again. Abedazal said to Abshimazal, Stop. You don't have to ask any more. Because Abedazal's mother, Tzadekis Fegazal, who was from Zedah Avdi Baal Shema Kodesh, came to Rabbein Azal a dream and said to Rabbein Azal, how much longer will you refuse Rabbein Azal? He has earned it, give it to him, and you must do so because he would end. Honor your mother's request. Rabbein Azal because of my mother's request, because she has asked it, therefore it is granted. This was the point that Nosan Azal felt envious of, Imagine the zechus of Shemazel had to be zechut to know that forever afterwards, in the highest levels of Gan Eden, be able to serve the Benazel. This, of course, staggers the imagination. Yet at the same time, the point here was, we see again, that there were many students that Benazel had who were most probably greater tzaddikim and greater lumdim than of Shemazel. Certainly greater lumdim. Yet it was not the London, it was the Mishamesh who was zechut to achieve that high closeness, that elevated position in Elam Haba forever afterwards, because Kodal Shimusha Muda. Because serving a tzaddik, serving a Talmud Chacham, is more important than learning Torah from a Talmud Chacham. Naturally, this means both. If you serve at the same time, you learn. While serving, there is information gleaned, there is Torah being learned, 
and a Torah that is much more to the point than just regular lessons. This was the reason why Elisha Hanavi was selected by Hashem to be the next leader of the Jews to take over after Elia Hanavi, because no one had permitted himself and sort of lowered himself to this menial type of work. He agreed to take on the lowest type of work because this was the mitzvah of Mishamesh Eitzadikimus. He once mentioned, the Gemara says that, we learned this recently if you recall, but it's worth repeating here because it's pertinent to this part. The Gemara says that Meshur Abeno is comparable to the sun, and Yeshua is comparable to the moon. The sun contains all the light that exists in the heavens. The moon contains nothing except that which it receives from the sun. Now, the Gemara says that Tzadikim in heaven say, Woe is to that embarrassment. Look at this, only one single generation. And already there's a difference like from sun to moon, from extreme brightness to zero. Imagine how generations are, be- are deteriorating and lessening in greatness. The Lushan is, Eliyasa Busha, woe is to that embarrassment that we are so much less compared to those before us. Thus, as I was trying to explain this statement to mean, Eliyasa Busha, when they will see the fact that Meshur Abbeinu is like the sun, Yeshua is like the moon, they won't say that this is a shame. Look at the comparison. They'll say, woe is to us. Woe is to our shame. Because Ashrei to Yeshua, who is the moon that receives the keli, the receptacle that receives the light of the sun, this very bright, pure light of Meshur Abbeinu. Woe is to the embarrassment that we had during our lifetime. We had the opportunity also to serve as Yeshua did. Why didn't we? Because we were embarrassed. It's not fit for our honor, our covered, to drag chairs around, to carry packages, to pour water, to run an errand. Because we were embarrassed to do it then, look at the disgraced klima we have now and seeing ourselves so far from this Kedusha and he who accepted this menial type of labor, Yeshua, was zechad to this high appointment following Meshach Abenu. And therefore, the lesson is, of course, moral lesson. Theta teaches the importance, the vital importance of a true hiskavus, true relationship, the closeness to the tzaddik To know, remember always, that the closer a person is to the tzaddik during his lifetime, that's how he'll be close to him too in Elam Haba, where it counts, where it's forever. A person who, who estranges himself here, will find himself much further away there, Chas And that's why during a person's lifetime, he is going to have a lot of difficult tests to pass. The most difficult of all the tests, by far, is that of others trying to dissuade him, trying to discourage him, trying to, to enforce the idea of it being unnecessary. Why go to the Tzadikimus? What can you gain? Study the Torah, believe in Hashem, you don't need that, that middle point. And this type of dissuasion, this type of evil talk, if Chas Hashem allowed to continue, could literally draw a person away from the Tzadik and sever his ties. Therefore, one must be extremely strong. Chazak v'yamotz. This is what Hashem said to Yeshua. You who were so strong during your lifetime, Chazak v'yamotz, remain that strong and powerful because the schus of your closeness then will keep you forever in Elam Habatu. Let's strengthen ourselves with a true, pure emunah.
Amuna and the Tzadikim Amitim, one of the Tzadikim is now, and know that in the Yishchus of this Amuna will be Zecher to really come close to the Tzadikim forever afterwards. We hope to continue this topic, Mitashem, with an additional story that Benazel himself told about this discussion, how it ties in the discussions in this life and in the future. Should we Zecher to see through this? Through his cash is the coming of Mashiach the Keno, being a basic shade of Amen, the